This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Maria Judice about learning to communicate better with clients, about the early days of design on the Internet, and what it's like to work for Facebook. Just like a college campus. And then you go into the courtyard and people are bicycling and tricycling and everything is free and the sun's always shining. People always just look so happy outside, right? Here's Debbie Millman. In the past 20 years, the field of design has grown in scope and ambition. Designers aren't just preoccupied with the visual and material world. They're designing the flow of information. They're designing retail and web experiences and solutions to ecological problems and poverty. They're helping to shape the identity of organizations from the ground up. More recently, design thinking has begun taking root in the executive suites of major corporations. In a new book, Maria Judice and her co-author, Christopher Ireland, argue that business people with the creative problem-solving skills of designers are essential to the success of modern organizations. Maria Judice is the former CEO and founder of Hot Studio and currently the director of product design at Facebook, and she joins me today to talk about her book, The Rise of the DEO, Leadership by Design. Maria, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks, Debbie. I'm so excited to be here talking with you today. I am really excited, too. I was especially excited when I realized that you grew up in Staten Island. Oh, no. Did so you? So did I. <laughs> oh, my God. That is, like, that is huge revelation. Huge. We just rocked the design world. <laughs> it's too, too much Most of Staten the time Island. I tell people, oh, yeah, I lived on Staten Island. I'm like, where? I know. one of the five boroughs. It is? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) We'll have to share our Staten Island tattoos later. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Were you born on Staten Island? I was born in Brooklyn. So was I. (laughs) Okay. Did did your parents move to Staten Island when the bridge was built? It was right after when it was only 25 cents. Remember that? One way, 25 cents. But we went from Brooklyn to Queens to Staten Island. Oh, okay. So you went straight from Brooklyn to Staten Island. I did. Early adopter, you. I am the original bridge and tunnel person. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was named after me. Okay. Back to the the show. Mm -hmm. So I understand you took painting lessons every Saturday. Saturday morning. How old were you when you first started? I studied painting with Mr. Frederick Sklenar on Staten Island. I think I started when I was eight years old. And I would go every Saturday. Do you know those Robert Foster books? Yes. You can paint seascapes or clown portrait paintings or landscapes or still lives. And he would be like, go pick out a picture from one of these books and here's some canvas board and start painting. And so that's how you got your start. Now, you were double teaming because I understand that you were making portraits of dogs. Mm -hmm. You were painting on jeans jackets. I was painting on jeans, not the jackets, but jeans. Mm -hmm. I was also embroidering band logos. Oh, yes. On jeans. Yes. And then you were also babysitting. So you would do the painting while you were babysitting. So Mm -hmm. you're making like twice as much money because you're getting paid to do the dog portraits and the jeans jackets and the babysitting. So very industrious, even at a very young age. I was was an entrepreneur at a very early age. Now, I understand that you always knew that you wanted to be a famous artist, but there was a brief period of time wherein that was challenged and you also wanted to be a Raquel Welch lookalike. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Now, oh, now, you did your research. Now, for those of our <laughs> listeners that may be too young to remember Raquel Welch, who she was and what she represented, I'd really, I thought it would be fun for you to exp- explain her to our <laughs> listeners and then tell us why on earth you wanted to grow up to be her lookalike. I guess I had a wicked sense of humor very <laughs> early on because that was from my sixth grade graduation yearbook. I was just joking at the time. I either want to be a famous artist or Raquel Welch look like, which is this hot woman with giant boobs. It was, you know, well, I'm either going to be a famous artist or I'm going to be a, a, hot, sex symbol. a hot woman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you're both. Thank you. <laughs> with that sans the boobs. <laughs> so following high school, you were one of the lucky few that went to Cooper Union mm-hmm. because Cooper Union was free. Mm-hmm. And that's where you were first introduced to Richard Saul Worman. Yep. So talk about that because I, I understand it was a rather interesting first meeting with him. <laughs> yes. Can you share mm-hmm. what happened? Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. I went into Cooper Union thinking that I was going to be a painter. And then by my sophomore year, I started diversifying and I took calligraphy classes and photography. And then I started taking graphic design classes. I actually even took computer programming classes in the engineer program, having no idea that that would have any relevance to me later on in my life because these wow. were the these were the analog years, my friend. Oh yeah, Those, yeah. So these were the early eighties, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's typositor and hand rendering type and going to a typesetter and. I loved calligraphy because to me it was the balance between painting and graphic design. But I really struggled with graphic design. It felt so formulaic. And then in my senior year of college, Peter Bradford was my teacher, and he was friends with Richard Saul Werman. The founder of TED. Yes. At the time, he was the owner of the Access Guides. And he, like, waddled into my class— looked nothing like what designers look like. You know, the short Jewish guy with a big scarf, sweaters. I was used to sort of the model of designers that look like Vignelli. (laughs) So it was like, who the hell is this guy? And he walked in, and I'm this girl from Staten Island. As you can guess, I had the huge high hair that was teased up with a can of Aquanet. So kind of flock of seagulls hair. Oh, my God. Not flock, because Wendy from Prince and the Revolution. Yes. I need to be clear about that. I, I, I hear you, and I respect it. <laughs> okay, thank you. So he walked in, and he just, like, basically told us, I'm paraphrasing, he's like, you're all full of shit. <laughs> he was like, you know, stop, stop designing for yourself. Stop making this sort of an aesthetic exercise. Design is really about helping people make sense of the world. And it was like this moment where I was like, oh, (laughs) this light came down on the clouds and said, that's what I want to do. So right out of school, I went to work for him. But Um, how did you, I mean, how did you get to him? I mean, did you go up to him after class and say, hey, Richard? Yeah, I... um, Maria from Staten Island. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I did it then. Peter Bradford actually connected me. He was my teacher because he also saw that the kind of design work that I was doing was very much in the vein of, like, helping people make sense of the world. My projects were all about information design. So he connected me to to, uh, Richard. Most of my portfolio was, like, a little bit of design and a lot of calligraphy. Like, for example, I think the thing that got me hired was I did 
a calligraphic map of the Garden of Earthly Delights. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, Steve Jobs' calligraphy changed his life. He took a class in calligraphy and look what happened with him. Yeah, it was just – it was like – Oh my! You know, it was like I color coded it. I had numbers. I I employed all the rules of good information design at a young age, and I think he really dug it. And I think that's what got me hired. No, he hired you on the spot. Is that pretty correct? much? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you then moved to San Francisco to work for him. Well, I worked in Soho on Wooster Street. Actually, Abbott Miller was there too. And uh, he was like, you're Italian. You could design Rome access. I'm like, oh, okay. Can I go to Italy do research? <laughs> no. Here, paste this up and design this book. So I started out designing guidebooks. And then I would say about a year in, he got the gig to redesign the Pacific Bell Yellow Pages. And now I had absolutely no interest in moving to California. I'm a through and through New Yorker. There's New York and pretty much that's it. But my girlfriend was like driving cross country and moving to San Francisco. And I was thinking, hmm, I could do a road trip and work there for like three months and help set the office up and then come back. Either that or Richard was going to fire me because we were fighting like crazy. He Why I. were you fighting so we, much? Well, he's, we fought over design. We fought over everything. Well, I actually want to read you a quote. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how you described yourself at the time. Oh. I was obnoxious and yes. loud. Oh, yes. I was used to New York. I didn't understand the culture out there. So I took a class in interpersonal yes. communications at City College, and it helped amazingly. Yes. I learned about listening techniques, and I learned to use non-threatening language. <laughs> it saved my career. That's when I moved to California. Now, Richard was still here. So in a lot of ways, he kind of exported me <laughs> to California. Right. And, you know, it's like I'm done with this woman. I'm moving her to California. So, yes, I was obnoxious. But I love the fact that you felt confident enough in yourself to actually fight with him. <laughs> I called my first boss by by Mrs. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, no. I remember going into his uh, his room once. I was really, like, upset, you know, right out of school. So you know how designers right out of school are so they treat their design work as if it's so precious and that they know better. And so that's where my head was at. And I went in and he was like messing with my design work. And I hated what he was doing. Was he dictatorial? At that time, he was. But, you know, I was also right out of school. And Interesting so, combination. Yeah. So <laughs> I remember going in and crying and saying, why don't you respect me and respect <laughs> what I am bringing? He's like, and I remember, I don't know, I think he might have been like 50 at the time. He's Maria. I'm like 50 years old. <laughs> Chances are I'm not going to change anytime soon, and you're sure as hell not going to change me. <laughs> it was one of those moments like I'm going to remember that. Yeah. And now that I'm in my 50s, I'm almost saying the same thing. Yeah, at a certain point where you just like yeah. take me or leave yeah. me. You know? That's There's right. nothing more I can do. Exactly. So what did you learn in your interpersonal communication <laughs> class, and how did you learn to use the non-threatening language? When I moved to San Francisco— Nobody was getting my sarcasm or, like, obscene sense of humor, which, you know, everybody in New York appreciates. And, Absolutely. And rolls, we roll that way, right? Yeah, that's just the way everyone is here. You do not roll that way in California. Everybody's like, it's a little Stepford Wivey. Everybody's like, hi. Everybody's happy, curious. They're nice to each other. Healthy. Healthy. And then so when I came and I was like my negative, sarcastic, very New York self, people were really – they were really thrown off 
I couldn't communicate with anybody and I was pissing people off. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to lose my job if I can't figure this out. What is the biggest thing you learned from this class? Well, shutting the fuck up and listening is probably a big one, <laughs> which I do on a regular basis. I'm like, I am dominating this conversation. I'm going to be more powerful if I listen. Um, you know, making sure that you're not using fighting words like, I think that sucks. Or, you know, you're wrong. Or, you know, it's more like, here's what I'm hearing what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> or when you say this, I feel like this. <laughs> I'm sure that's very effective. Yes. <laughs> so you got into web design and information architecture really early. Yeah. What gave you the sense that this would be the way of the future? So many designers at that time were so vehemently mm-hmm. opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons why I wound up accidentally moving to the Bay Area was because Richard really embraced technology. He had all the newest Macs. We were one of the first uh, design studios to actually have these tools where we can learn how to design digitally. And I fell in love with the technology, and I just thought it was the coolest thing. So this Fortran class that I took in accidentally in Cooper should have been a signal that I was going to really adapt to working on the computer and the power that the computer can bring. Then there was the whole CD-ROM area, which I despised, and I stayed away like the plague. Designers really weren't empowered. They didn't understand the technology enough to ask questions about why things could be built or they couldn't be built. And do you think that's changed? Completely changed because when the web came along, it was open. Like you could learn how to code and you could understand how to use the technology in a way that's going to be innovative and design friendly. The funniest thing I have to tell you I'm very good friends with Nathan Shedroff. Yes. And he used to have a company called Vivid. And I had a company called Yo! before Hot. Right. And he was doing CD-ROMs at the time. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Well, Nathan's been in the business so long. His URL is Nathan.com, which is just crazy. I know. It's crazy. So we were close, and I was running my business. I was designing books and printed materials, and he was doing CD-ROMs. And he said, you know what? My company is no longer going to do CD-ROMs. We are going to work on the web. And I was like, that'll never take off. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) sure you are. And and then one of my clients in 93-ish said, Maria, you think about design in such a different way. You approach design in a very unique way from the information out. Will you design our website? And I'm like, I don't know what a website is, but I'm sure I could do it. And what website was that? The Peach Pit Press website. You know, you learned how to code by going to the, you know, World Wide Web website and, and, <laughs> and figuring out what the codes are. We discovered basically how to do it together. A whole bunch of us through just connections were exchanging information. And then after that, I was asked to co-author the Elements of Web Design, which taught print designers how to become web designers. 
And so you founded your company, Hot Studio. You and your partner split up. She took the Y, you took the O, <laughs> and then became Hot Studio yes. Yes. Um, in 1997 and initially conceived the firm as a collective of really smart people. Yeah. And in the years since you started, you've grown from a two-person shop specializing in graphic design and information architecture into a full-service experience design company with nearly 80 employees. And then you sold your company to Facebook, congratulations. Thank you. Um, but how did you grow so fast in, in the years that you were initially doing your business, especially given the dot-com bust and the Great Recession? Yeah. How, did, how did you do that? I don't look at it as growing fast. I, I think it's actually pretty <laughs> slow because in the dot-com boom, people were going from like two to hundred like in weeks and they failed. So I founded Hot in 1997 and I sold it like 16 years later. Through that period... It went up. It went down. We grew from like 6 to 20 in 2000, and then the bust happened. So many of my colleagues' companies died, like overnight. But I managed to hold on to my company because I had really great relationships. And they essentially, I feel like, kept me afloat by continuing to invest in my company. And then a colleague of mine, Rajan Dave, came on board, and he helped scaled the company through his operations acumen. You appointed him president at that point. Yeah. He and I have known each other. We worked together for Richard Saul Worman back in the old understanding business days. He actually was an intern when I met him, and then he went off to get his MBA. So he was a an MBA student who understood and had experience working with designers. I am a designer, graduated with a BFA, but I had this, like, great entrepreneurial intuition. So we really worked incredibly well together to help grow and build the company and make sure that we developed a culture that we believed in and actually were doing things for the right reasons. And that you were also profitable. Yeah. I love the part. I think it's in your book. Either it's in your book or in a marvelous interview with you, but you talk about how he taught you this is how much money you're making. This is how much money it costs to do the work. So there should be something left over. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I give that advice to people all the time. I think it's marvelous. You don't you don't spend money you don't have. And so Hot was independent, and we were never really in debt. So we grew when we can afford to grow. So your services included design, strategy, and technology. And on the website, you stated that you helped your clients see and build the future. Mm-hmm. How were you able to see the future? Is it trend forecasting? Is it intuition? How do you, how do you see that? I'm a huge believer in insight-based research. Trend forecasting is a component of that, I think. There's also being aware of technology and having the insight to understand when technology is going to change. And when you're in the technology industry, you can look ahead and say, that's going to be big, that's not going to so be do you, big. And you feel that? Is it, so how, do you, how do you look at something and know whether it's going to be big or not? I can sometimes do that with like a popular song, yeah. but I can't really do that with technology. I think it's really when you're collaborating with very technical people, asking the question, if we invest in this technology, can it scale? Is this a technology that is going to be proprietary and it will be closed? But when you're dealing with things that are open, open standards... That's an invitation for evolution and innovation by the tech community. So there's those kind of things. And then I'm a really strong believer in human-centered design and having deep empathy for people and studying them and doing really quick 
user research just going in front of a museum and asking people to have a judgment on a piece of design work. So we really were very focused in understanding human behavior and making sure that we're designing systems that they're going to want and need. How can you tell when something is appealing to a person or how do you get a sense that something is going to be appealing? I think that there are three tenets of quality. One is value to people. So the very first tenant is, is this going to be valuable? Is this going to solve a problem? Is this going to fulfill a need? The next one is ease of use. Whatever you're designing, this isn't just digital, this is physical. Is this going to be easy to use? Have you removed all the friction and barriers to make this thing usable for people so they can integrate it easily into their life? Then the very third one is craft. I think the issue of craft is the difference between good to great. When you go from good to great, there's that element of delight and magic that has to happen in design. And I can't explain how that happens, but that's where great design comes from. Great design changes us. We smile. We laugh. We have so many great designers like Sackmeister who, like, anytime you see his work, you smile because he has that element of magic to make it amazing. And that happens in interaction design, like just pressing a button and getting a funny sound could make somebody chuckle. So that's how I describe delight. Prior to selling your company to Facebook, you had 247 clients at Hot Studio from 1997 to 2013. Since you very specifically listed 247, <laughs> I, I couldn't help but, but want to ask any particular favorites, like number 13 or number 203, <laughs> um, any particular favorites or things that you're most proud of? We always say we love all our children. Every CEO <laughs> will tell you that we love all our children. I wouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I do have a couple of projects. I did. A, I was um, volunteered to work on the one of the TED prizes with Cameron Sinclair. It's my probably my favorite project because I feel like it changed me more as a person than anything else. In what way? Well, it was following Hurricane Katrina, and you remember all those images of people on their rooftops. Those were the sort of the beginning of the end, you know, the end of the world is coming soon with the climate crisis. And he had a wish to create an online system that would connect architects and designers around the world to collaborate on humanitarian-based projects. Now, this was 2006, 2007. Those tools didn't exist. A lot of the work had to be coordination on the ground, The thing that I think really had an impact on me was when I did the ethnographic research in Biloxi and slept on the floor of a church in 100-degree weather with hundreds and hundreds of volunteers, young and old, dads, granddads, kids, moms, young people, people from all over the world came and wanted to volunteer to help rebuild. It was this juxtaposition of tragedy and hope that was so profound this was a very tragic problem where we saw people in, uh, who were uh, displaced. But then this wellspring of volunteers and love where people would get up at 6 a.m. and learn how to, you know, demold or spackle a, a wall. And that really changed me by seeing that it really inspired me to create that system and make it successful for the client. So what made you decide to 
sell your company and move your entire staff over to Facebook. Yeah. How, how does something like that happen? <laughs> well, I've always told my employees there's two outcomes here. One day I'm either going to sell the company or I'm not. Those are the two <laughs> outcomes. I was very clear about that. And I also told them I'm not going to be 80 years old and run Hot Studio. But you're far from 80. I'm far from 80. But I was hitting 50 and I was like, I always in my mind said, when I'm 50, I actually want to do something different. So this opportunity came where I got to not sell my company to a WPP or a publicist and suffer death by a thousand paper cuts because I would essentially sell my company, lose control, and then not have as much fun. Or with Facebook, I get to kind of freeze my company as a moment in time of greatness and not compromise anything. And I get to be in this new place. I get to change my career, and it's like starting over. So what does the director of product design mean? What do you do? Everybody asks me that. I had dinner with my mother yesterday, and she's like, tell me what you do. (laughs) And I say, well, I have to be obtuse. Everybody who works at Facebook, they have to work simultaneously on today, tomorrow, and the future. So my job is to do the same thing. And it's an incredibly flat organization. Mark Zuckerberg actually meets with designers, and designers present their work to him. Everything has to be presented to Mark. And And, have you had that experience? Oh, yeah. Oh, you'll have to tell us about that, too. It's kind of intimidating. (laughs) You think? I I don't think – I would think I'm not going to be – I've been in front of CEOs. I'm a CEO. I'm not going to be intimidated. I go in a meeting, and I'm friggin' intimidated just because he is so smart – And to see a guy, he's 30, for God's sake, who can be a visionary from a business standpoint, but also care deeply about creating good products for people and be able to articulate the details at both extremes is rare. And so I work with teams of designers on projects, small and large. The reason why I'm a director of product design is because I'm old. (laughs) I've had a life. I've had a career. What would it have been if you were younger? I would have been just a, simply a designer or maybe a design manager. The title doesn't really mean much at Facebook. So what would your typical day look like at Facebook without obviously oh. revealing all the secrets? Yeah. Facebook is such an interesting place. I'm going to say this again, but it feels a little Stepford wivy. You go to this campus, and it feels like a college campus. Like you walk in, and there's, there's graffiti all over the walls. There's posters all over the walls. It feels really creative. Sounds like a college campus. It's just like a college campus. And then you go into the courtyard, and it's this long courtyard, and people are bicycling and tricycling, and everything is free, and the sun's always shining. People <laughs> always just look so happy outside, right? But then, like, inside, it's really intense. You know, you are expected to ship products. Everybody's friendly. People are incredibly smart. I feel like I'm the dumbest person at Facebook. But everybody feels that way. It's like full of type A people who feel like they were like the last picked on a softball team. (laughs) And, And it's intimidating, but everybody's in it for the right reasons. It's a mission based company. And I'm learning so much. I feel like I'm so lucky to be able to change your life at 50 years old and actually learn things. So was there a big culture shock going from helming your own firm to being part of this behemoth that is Facebook? Yeah, I'm still in shock, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Because I can't imagine that you 
don't like being the boss. I love not being the boss, oh, actually. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, it's so refreshing not to be in charge all the time. And I'm not in charge. I have peers that I have to negotiate with in the design world on a regular basis. And that is challenging because I'm not used to that. I'm used to like, oh, we're going to make a decision. Go for it. Let's do it. And then people are like, no, actually, you have to ask X, Y, and Z. And that that's hard for me. But I love not having the stress of being responsible for over 100 people and their families every day. And I could, at the end of the day, go home and say, it's Mark Zuckerberg's problem. <laughs> I didn't have that at Hot Studio. So let's talk about your most recent accomplishment, the publication of your brilliant book, The Rise of the DEO, Leadership by Design. First, let's talk about the title. What yeah. is a DEO? <laughs> it's called the Design Executive Officer. The future leaders of the world need to combine the skills of creativity and analytics. The DEO is really a statement where you are the CEO who is a designer. And what made you decide to write a book like this? This is actually my third book, and I know how much work it goes into a book, so I was like, there's no way I'm going to write this book. But a couple of years ago, I was um, asked to speak at the TEDx Presidio conference. And I was trying to brainstorm what I could uniquely talk about. And I was talking to a woman who was coaching me at the time. And I was like, you know, I'm a CEO. I do CEO things. There's nothing I do that's unique. And she went, what? <laughs> she goes, Maria, you do things so differently than normal traditional CEOs. You have no idea. So then I was like, really? And I started doing research and I realized, like, the things that came naturally to me as a designer who looks at all problems as design problems were unnatural to other people. So I started really just charting out the things that I do. And then I started backing it up with research and realizing that, no, actually, my kooky way is the way to the future. And then suddenly I had a framework for a book. And then my co-author, Chris Ryland, and I teach a class at California College of the Arts called Business and Design. And she said, I will help you write this book. And I said, we are going to fucking write this book. So you start the book with a very vivid portrait, and I'd like to read it. You write, the crowd at South by Southwest stretches to the horizon. The two weeks long conference showcasing music, film, and interactive talent attracts a young crowd. Mostly under 40, the attendees come from around the globe for a hit of their favorite drug, change. Really? I thought most people hate change. Well, yeah. I think that most people do hate change. But people who are embracing technology, millennials in particular, are used to change. They grew up in a world that's incredibly tumultuous. We grew up where our fathers or mothers worked in the same place for 20, 30, 40 years, and then they got pensions. The average age of companies the lifespan of companies changed from 75 years on average to 15 years. And the average time that people spend at companies before they make a change is about two years. So there is this natural thing that is happening already in our society where change has become more common than it was in the past. You continued the book by stating that in the United States alone, over 6 million startups are launched annually and how Google, Amazon, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube weren't on the Fortune 100 
10 years ago. Yep. Do you have a sense of how this all happened? Do you think we'll look back on this time as the golden age of the internet? I think we're just starting. It's funny, Facebook just celebrated 10 years. My son is 13 years old. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's it's fast what has happened. And I'm so fascinated to see how people are just, they don't, they take technology for granted, which is great. Because when we started, remember, like we would turn on the SyQuest drive and hope for the best. Well, I would actually <laughs> look, I take a magazine in front of AOL.com, wait for the page to load yes. and read the magazine yes. while I was waiting for the page to load. Yeah, Photoshop. You'd, you'd, like, you'd do like a rotation in Photoshop and wait a half an hour. And I, I remember, I remember like sending something to print at like nine o'clock at night going to bed, and it will be finished printing by the next morning, right. like just finished. Yeah, absolutely. So technology, we had to kind of slog through technology to actually get things done. Technology is invisible and ubiquitous, and people expect great experiences through their technology devices. I look at Facebook as a platform, and I think in like three years we're going to laugh at and go, oh, my God, it was so cute back then. How do you envision it? Or I guess it would be hard to answer that question. But if you could envision a site like Facebook in three years, what would you envision? Well, I think, you know, we're moving into more verbal commands. So I think, you know, we're going to lose this dependency of typing everything and just telling your device what to do. There's going to be even more contextual information between you and the friends and the circle of people that you use. I mean, more and more, we're going to be getting information from our friends. We're going to be wearing technology. You think Google Glass is going to figure prominently in our future? I hate Google Glass. Those people look so silly. You know what I think it's analogous to? Remember when the first cell phones came out? There were these giant, they must have been like 10 pounds. (laughs) Remember? It looked like it was like from Lost in Space with this giant (laughs) like antenna. That's what Google Glass is to me. Um, One of the things that you talk about at the beginning of the book is how As you mentioned, people stay in a job for an average of about two years. And you talk about how the average adult worker in the United States is going to hold more than 10 jobs in their lifetime. It seems like we're living in a time where very little is really predictable anymore and no career path is predetermined. And you're a wonderful example of that, having sort of reinvented Mm -hmm. the whole possibility and the direction of your career at Mm -hmm. 50. Yeah. And you talk about how nobody can play it safe anymore. I mean, you say this environment of incessant nonlinear change will only accelerate in the future and traditional CEOs are ill-equipped to survive. Yep. Why are they ill-equipped to survive? Because they're inflexible and they're afraid of change. When you think of, like, traditional business executives, you never heard CEOs embrace change. It was always about mitigating risk, where the DEO types are using risk to learn. What I say, DEOs take smart risks. They don't take risks that are going to bring the house down, but they're going to take risks where they can kind of move the needle and learn from it. And if they screw up, they can kind of backtrack. Traditional leaders are very linear. They'd be like, we're going to work on this project, and then we're going to work on this project. And like business plans were very linear. I would say 50-50 traditional leaders really would not give intuition any credit. But now a lot of people are using a combination of analytics and imagination to come up with good ideas. And also the whole idea of being people-centered. I think traditional CEOs really would take a business model 
and then figure out how that model would fit into people's lives. Whereas people who are innovative are looking at what people need and creating products that they can sustain themselves through monetization in order to survive. So it's a completely different mindset. You write in such an interesting and entertaining and smart way. I want to uh, read another quote about what you believe about traditional CEO behavior. You write that putting a traditional CEO at the front of a modern workforce is anachronistic and proposing design-inspired leadership as the answer may sound like a zealous art teacher attacking poverty with a new color palette. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I have to give credit to Christopher Ireland, who is poetic as a writer. The two of us are incredible collaborators, where I'm sort of the big thinker, visual thinker, coming up with the framework, and Christopher is the woman who fills in the details. We're both type A, so (laughs) sometimes... Sometimes I'm the bottom and sometimes she's the bottom. So, you know, we talk about that. Like, okay, I'm going to be a bottom or I'm, I need to be the top for this decision. Mm, so, topping from below. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she's really amazing to work with. So you outline six defining characteristics of a DEO. I want to talk a little bit about some of them. The first is a change agent. Mm-hmm. And you say that DEOs aren't troubled by change. In fact, they openly promote and encourage it. How can you get to a place where you aren't troubled by change? Are there are there techniques? I think most people turn into that sort of reptilian predecessor yeah. <laughs> in their in their DNA and just freak out at yeah, the yeah. opportunity of, of looking change straight in the face. In the book, we tried to think of small things that you can do to get more comfortable with change just as simply as like changing your wardrobe or like doing small things that you would not want to do that just kind of change your behavior. So the goal is for all of these things is to figure out what is your behavior and how do you trigger that behavior so you can kind of learn how to move in the right direction. You talk about shifting perspective and suggest that people try to maintain a separate identity online, which I thought was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you recommend that? So that's like one of the workouts. So we call these things workouts that you can try. It's just another way to kind of identify the trigger of behavior. And if you had an avatar and your avatar did not have the baggage of what you bring to the table. Oh, I get it. It's like almost prototyping a different person without being that person. That's remarkable. I love that yeah. idea. That's remarkable. Yeah. That's so, remarkable. So that's kind of the idea is like if you could like try these things that are low risk and see how you feel about them, you can kind of get used to change. But it's not – you can't do it in a vacuum. You have to be thinking of everything holistically. One of the other six defining characteristics is being a risk taker. And you Mm -hmm. say that DEOs embrace risk as an inherent part of life and a key ingredient of creativity. And you quote T.S. Eliot, a marvelous quote. You say, only those who risk going too far can possibly find out how far they could go. And I found that to be incredibly motivational because I'm a person that loathes risk. I'm I'm a very fixed personality. I've lived in the same place for 20 years. I've worked (laughs) at the same job for 19 years. The whole idea of risk to me is just terrifying. Mm -hmm. But you talk about how there's no innovation and no true originality without some measure of risk, a new song, a more efficient car, a more effective vaccine, Whatever the category, it doesn't matter. Every success is the result of Mm risk-taking at some point. Well, how do you – like, do you ever regret 
not like going further? Yes, absolutely. I regret everything that I haven't done every day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's something to look at, right? Right. Absolutely. Like even with running Hot Studio and also being a mother of two children where my husband's very risk adverse. So he's the no guy and I'm the why not person. So the kids all know who to go to. Um, But I'm always thinking, like, when I was running Hot Studio, I would always ask the question, what's the worst thing that can happen? Failure. Well, so what? Is failure meaning you're going to die? Is it that your ego is going to get wounded? Is it that it's not going to work? So what? It's not to be afraid of failure. Failure can be incredibly empowering. It can be incredibly empowering to say to somebody that you report to and said, you know what, I, ma- I fucked up or I made that mistake or I tried this thing and I failed miserably, but I learned from it. And I, <laughs> I have been known to do that at Facebook <laughs> in my year being there, you know, but it's actually really liberating to not hold that in and say, I've, I learned something here. One of my favorite of your six defining characteristics of a DEO is GSD, (laughs) which DEOs can be defined by a new set of initials, GSD, short for gets shit done. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So you say that the best design is 50% thinking and 50% doing. You learn through doing. They're codependent. Designers can get shit done. They know how to drive towards a deadline and get to a conclusion. Without the doing, you get nowhere. And you actually recommend that people set deadlines, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that most people hate deadlines. Oh, yeah. So what do the deadlines do? Does it force you to get it done? Don't you set deadlines in everything you do? I keep a to-do list, and and, and that's sort of how I sort of keep track of what I need to do. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I guess there's – well, there are deadlines sort of embedded in the things that I need to do. Yeah, Well, so there's a couple of things there. First of all, I really loathe the term design thinking. Oh, good. For the very reason (laughs) that it's one half of the equation. What's the other half? Doing. (laughs) So, I know. Actually, speaking, that's so funny. I was reading a, a critique about the notion of design thinking, and somebody was comparing it to basketball thinking. Like, mm, could you imagine yes. if basketball players just sat around thinking about playing basketball? Right, right. So I, I think it's a ter- – will. you'll never hear me say that term. Thomas Edison said, vision without execution is hallucination. At Facebook, we have a saying called done is better than perfect because you can never achieve perfection. That doesn't mean that you turn out shitty work. You just have to be realistic about what can you turn out that's of high quality that could actually get in the marketplace so people can start using it. The get shit done thing is so important for CEOs because they have to model that behavior downstream. And you also created another acronym, SFD. SFD. (laughs) Yes, shitty first draft. And I think that it was a sort of wonderful way of thinking about any kind of prototyping. Yes. Just expect that any first draft it's is going to be shitty. Shitty first draft gives you a lot of permission to move forward. So I'm not a great writer, even though this book is beautifully written. I have to give a lot of the credit to Christopher. But when we were writing the book together, I was like empowered when I could say, I'm just giving you a shitty first draft. I'm just doing a shitty first draft. It's like, I'm not judging. Just get the shit out. Let's put it out there. That's where iteration and evolution come in. 
instead of like getting it perfect the first time, think of it more about like paper mache, like you're adding layers and layers and layers and you're refining, refining till you get to that level of craft and excellence that's good enough to share with people. Maria, I want to finish the show by quoting something else that you said that I think is just so incredibly inspirational for anyone in any career, in any path that they're taking. You write, I started out as that working girl with the accent who never thought she was going to be successful in graphic design. I don't care what you do in life. Just love what you do and try to do it better than anyone else. The artist and entrepreneur have collided. So I just want to say thank you for colliding right here, right now with (laughs) us here on Design Matters. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks. I hope you invite me back because we have so much more to talk about. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. (laughs) You can find out more about Maria Judice and her amazing book, DEO, The Rise of the DEO Leadership by Design, on their Facebook page, which has a lot of wonderful resources, lots of different links that take you to places where you can learn, grow, and be inspired. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we could do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Woo! Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.